Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Things are moving fast on the federal procurement front. New small business rules, GSA data gathering to club contractors with, all while appropriations seem to be forever in the future. We get some perspective now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And Larry, let's start with the small business rules or the rules that are coming from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy to change how the IDIQs work for small business. What's your take? Tom, I think that the change coming from the Office of Management and Budget, where they are going to implement the rule of two for task orders against all multiple award IDIQ contracts, except the GSA schedules, is potentially a big deal depending on the size of your company. Uh, On the face of it, it's obviously a big deal for small businesses because now if you're on one of these multiple award IDIQ contracts, the onus is going to be on the buying agency to, to come up with justifications to not give you task orders up to the simplified acquisition threshold, currently $250,000. If you're a very large business, this isn't probably going to have very much of an impact on you because your typical task order is always going to be way above $250,000. If, though, you are one of these middle-sized contractors, a kind of not well-defined term, uh, particularly ones selling commercial items, this rule change could very well have a significant impact on your business. So think about companies on NASA soup. This could be a big impact on some NASA soup contractors. Uh, this could be a big issue for CIO SP4 if that contract ever gets into place, but especially the next iteration of what will be the product-based CIO CS contract. So it could potentially have a very big impact uh, this was come came out of OFPP in discussions between themselves and the Small Business Administration, and there just wasn't a lot of advance notice. Like, surprise, here we are. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a rulemaking, but before the rulemaking, the agencies still have the directive to act in this way. So basically then the mid-tier people that compete with official quote-unquote small businesses and if there are two of them and the rule of two comes in then you're out of luck basically well and if talking the conversations i've had with uh, my contacts in the office of federal procurement policy tom that's not supposed to be the intent of the directive however there certainly is case law in place already that suggests just that it says that Small businesses are presumed to be able to meet the government's needs if they have already been awarded the base IDIQ contract. And I suspect that uh, protest lawyers will follow through on that if uh, agencies go in a different direction. Or agencies, if they want somebody, they can maybe tailor the requirements such that the rule of two doesn't come into play, I suppose. Agencies are given some latitude under this, uh, so it's not automatic. It's not meant to be automatic. Uh, I think how it's implemented, you know, this is brand new. The memo just came out a few days ago, so it's going to take a while to see how it's implemented, and it'll probably be implemented in different ways by different agencies. Uh, But 
it's not intended to be an automatic stop on uh, awarding task orders to other than small businesses, but it is definitely intended to switch the balance of power so that the presumption going in is in favor of small businesses. And will this possible memo or what could become a rule have a different effect whether you're selling services versus whether you're selling commodity-type products? Because I think the product vendors are the ones that might be more severely affected here. Tom, I think that's exactly right. I think that the nature of service buys, typically they're going to be over the simplified acquisition threshold uh, for all but the most modest types of programs. But if you're selling, say, uh, IT hardware and software, if you're selling uh, solutions that are through an IDIQ truck contract that is not a GSA schedule, you need to take a look at the OMB directive and strongly consider participating in the rulemaking comment process so that you're, you understand what the impact of this rule is on your business, uh, regardless whether or not whether you're small, medium, or even a little larger than medium. And you recently attended a webinar, I presume it was online, held by the GSA that's gathering all sorts of information on contracting, especially in the schedules area. And people were wondering what they are gathering for information, and sounds like you were surprised at how much they do collect. Well, Tom, GSA has talked about collecting data on transactional sales for a long time in one way or other. The idea being that they would actually use that information to look at driving lower day-to-day pricing on the schedules program. And we're kind of here. We're at that juncture right now where uh, GSA, whether it's through their transactional data reporting system, whether it's through uh, other elements of data gathering that they do through their 4P pricing tool, uh, GSA people are gathering a lot of information on what things actually sell for through the schedules program. And that's generally a good thing, so long as we can make apples to apples comparisons. But if you're a contractor, you need to be aware that if GSA is going to have a lot of data on its side, when you're asking for that price increase, when you're asking for that contract modification, uh, you're going to want to have a lot of data on your side too, so that uh, you can show why you believe your pricing offer is justified. Yes. In other words, they're trying to create some kind of objective way, which I guess they've been doing in some way for decades, of figuring out fair market value prices in an age when there's so much more data than there was in the 90s or 80s. Right. And, uh, you know, I've, we've seen, I think, it, the schedules program, Tom, is a big schedules program. We've already seen the use of this data have an impact in ways that are both positive and, frankly, not so positive. I mentioned a moment ago that you want to make sure you're doing apples to apples comparisons uh, on things before you say that somebody's price is, is too high, prices, you know, your price is too high, you can't have this item on schedule. Uh, and, or conversely, this item that you already have on schedule, which we deemed to be a fair and reasonable price two years ago, we're not so sure it's fair and reasonable now. And if you want to keep it on schedule, you have to lower your price. You know, that's some of the stuff that's coming into contractors. And they're like, well, wait a minute, we had a deal and now we don't have a deal. Uh, and 
you know, if you're a federal buyer and if you're a taxpayer, you certainly want the GSA to do its due diligence to drive down pricing. That's a good impact of this program. On the other hand, you know, any tool can be used in a way that it is not intended. Just ask me. <laughs> well, yeah, it's an old story. And all of this is happening in a backdrop of the clock once again ticking away toward a funding deadline now that we are, you know, a month away from the next one. I mean, these it seems like they're all far off when Congress actually passes each CR, but they creep up fast, especially with Congress not around that much in the next month. Uh, that's exactly right, Tom. I was actually kind of surprised, even though I followed this issue closely, to see last week you had major senators uh, saying that they weren't sure if they had enough time to do all 12 FY24 appropriations bills by the new early March deadlines. And in fact, if you look at the calendar, you can see why they feel that. You know, First of all, the House of Representatives was out all last week. Uh, so that week was gone in terms of trying to negotiate things. Uh, and then they're going to both chambers are going to be out for close to 10 days around the President's Day holiday in the middle of February. The net net of that is that we just don't have a ton of time for Congress to reach agreements uh, and then work to pass all 12 appropriations bills on their own, which is something that House leaders have said that they very much would like to do. Uh, throw into this the uh, discussion, debate over the southern border, whether or not the plan coming out of the Senate is acceptable to the House. Uh, and that's tied into this appropriations process as well right now. Uh, you, you have a lot of doubt, a lot of clouds are still on the horizon, even at this late part of the fiscal year. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, I thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake and what is that and um, I think most important what did you take away from that what did you learn from that well I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes admit our mistakes 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.